So the longest retreat in American history is in full effect down the Korean Peninsula for the final waning days of 1950 into the early days of 1951. This is an absolute disaster PR-wise for Douglas MacArthur, who has to do anything at all to save face. And if you understand anything about MacArthur, he has a massive ego, and this is not good for him at all, personally, or for his career. But there is one shining light that does come out of this massive retreat of UN forces. Supply lines are shortened, and the amount of equipment that can now be flooded into the battlefield for a U.S. counteroffensive is ready and willing to be used. Hello and welcome back to the Cleocast, episode 16, The Korean War, part 5. I'm RC. And I'm Matt. We definitely know what episode and part of the series it is. Totally not understanding what's going on at all. I normally have a list, but I decided to just guess this time, so you can correct me. We're going to get right into the subject material today with uh, part five of the Korean War. So, MacArthur now has a massive problem on his hands. As commander of UN forces, he looks like he's going to lose this. And it was told earlier to him by Truman not to cross the 38th parallel. MacArthur ignored that. MacArthur continued to move forward and had the Home by Christmas campaign in which he publicly, because MacArthur is anything but a media hog, uh, that truce would be home possibly by Christmas and as a big morale boost, it was basically over. So this loud mouth to the media is a big backlash when it comes to this now longest retreat in American history as he's forced back to the 38th parallel and even below the 38th parallel. So, what does MacArthur do? Well, he turns to everyone to blame other than himself. He takes to the media to trash talk both the president, the Air Force, and anyone he could throw under the bus that isn't Douglas MacArthur. But, we have our resident plane guy, R.C., to go into the bombing campaign that he was going into last episode and go into it with a bit more detail to understand exactly what MacArthur was trashing. Well, effectively, the giant bombing campaign I mentioned at the Yellow River last time, that got delayed by politics and by MacArthur, and you know they didn't want to draw the Chinese in or whatnot. It was a giant disaster because not only did it fail to stop the Chinese advance, as most bombings usually do, but also it didn't even blow up half the bridges it was supposed to. Like, it did succeed in destroying some, like, ammo depot supply junctions, but that's relatively easy to do. The larger issue is just misusing the planes at hand. They were trying to use B-29 strategic bombers that are designed to destroy large cities, and they were trying to use them to destroy bridges and ammo depots. And I mentioned this last episode, but that's not really that good of an idea because these things are relatively defenseless against these new jet fighters the Chinese and some Soviet volunteers are fielding against them. What they should have done if they wanted to be successful is keep the B-29s in reserve, field your jets, get air superiority, 
then use the jets to just strafe and attack columns. The focus on bridges days after it was relevant is what really kind of doomed this effort. They basically were trying to make an attack that would have been successful a week beforehand be successful later on because, well, we came up with the plan already, so let's just use it. But the cold temperatures and all that affecting the ground troops, it just, nothing could stop the Chinese advance that they had. They didn't really have a good tactical bomber. They only had the strategic bomber and the F-86 Sabre, just wasn't being used properly. Now, of course, MacArthur was blaming the Air Force for all of this, but in reality, it was just his own misunderstanding of the planes he had on hand and his own mishandling of the plans and delaying and politicking and all that. But, of course, that never stops you from pushing the blame now, does it? Now, MacArthur... uh was willing to turn to the press in order to make this blame known across the country and the world that this isn't MacArthur's fault. This is the Air Force's fault. The Air Force screwed up, messed up, and didn't do the bombing I needed them to do. And he turned to U.S. News and World Report, in which there was an interview that he did in which it goes like this. Oh, Also, I'll be playing the role as interviewer, and RC will be playing the role as MacArthur. Are the limitations which prevent unlimited pursuit of Chinese forces and a limited attack on their bases regarded by you as handicapped to effective military operations? It's an enormous handicap without precedent in military history. What accounts for the fact that an enemy without air power can make effective progress against forces possessing considerable air power? The limitations aforementioned, plus the type of maneuver which renders air support of ground operations extremely difficult, and the curtailment of the strategic potentiality of the air because of the sanctuary of neutrality immediately behind the battle area. Is there a significant lesson in this for U.S. planning? Yes. The interview then continued on, and some questions were pointed more about the use of atomic weapons in the war. Can anything be said as to the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of the atomic bomb in the type of operations in which you are now engaged? My comment at this time would be inappropriate. In the type of warfare now going on in Korea, are there large enough concentration of enemy troops to make the bomb effective? My comment at this time would be inappropriate. So MacArthur, as always through his career, has been causing a bit of a political issue for politicians in Washington. MacArthur is having an issue in Korea in which he's looking bad and is trying to find a way out of it, hence the nuke conversation uh, and his idea that maybe his comments would be inappropriate. And his failures or inability to listen or be a uh, communicative leader to people back in Washington has irked Truman for a while, in which Truman has debated in his head to fire him he wants to get rid of macarthur but especially with political issues going on in europe and the respect macarthur has in europe really puts truman in a bad position to fire him and really has to stand by macarthur in his situations and this bad situation going on in europe but that does not stop uh truman's true belief in MacArthur and his understanding of MacArthur to be shown in his diary in which Truman writes this has been a hectic month General Mack as usual has been shooting his mouth off 
he made a pre-election statement that cost us votes, and he made a post-election statement that has him in hot water in Europe and at home. I must defend him and save his face, even if he has tried on various and numerous occasions to cut mine off. But I must stand by my swordmates. And wouldn't Mac love that statement from a man he considers inferior? The nuclear talk continued, though, and not only from MacArthur. Some members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff had pointed out that they were being mentioned that they might have to discuss the possibility of using nukes if, say, a Soviet invasion were to happen to discourage such an invasion or, in absolute worst-case scenario, use nukes to protect uh, any form of evacuation from the Korean Peninsula. And this was not necessarily that popular in Europe because they didn't really like the idea of using nukes, especially on Soviets. In fact, Truman himself got in hot water from some of his own comments in that regard. In a different press conference, multiple reporters were questioning Truman about nuclear weapons and the policy regarding them in Korea. And Truman, not necessarily the greatest politician when it comes to talking and phrasing things correctly, had a few things to say. We're going to do this same interview format, but this time Matt will be playing Truman and I'll be asking the questions. Mr. President, will attacks in Manchuria depend on action in the United Nations? Yes, entirely. In other words, if the UN should authorize General MacArthur to go further than he has, he will? We will take whatever steps are necessary to meet the military situations, just as we always have. Will that include the atomic bomb? That includes every weapon that we have. Mr. President, you said every weapon that we have. Does that mean that there is an active consideration of the use of the atomic bomb? There has always been active consideration in its use. I don't want to see it used. It is a terrible weapon, and it should not be used on innocent men, women, and children who have nothing, whatever, to do with this military aggression. That happens when it's used. And then later on, the interview continues with additional questioning as follows. Mr. President, I wonder if we could retrace that reference to the atomic bomb. Did we understand you clearly that the use of the atomic bomb is under active consideration? Always has been, Smitty. It's one of our weapons. Does that mean, Mr. President, use against military objectives or civilian? It is a matter that the military people will have to decide. I am not the military authority that passes these things. And then further on in the interview, they again revisited the same point. Mr. President, you said that this depends on United Nations actions. Does that mean we would not use the atomic bomb except on a United Nations authorization? No, it does not mean that at all. The action against communist China depends on the action of the United Nations. The military commander in the field will have charge of the use of the weapons as he always has. And that's the conclusion of that interview, but... As you can probably tell, that is a disastrous statement for the President of the United States to make. It's not true that the military commander in the field has the ability to drop atomic weapons whenever he so chooses. But just the president saying that is not good because obviously the headlines go around the world. Of course, the White House retracted it and again affirmed no, according to the Atomic Energy Act, only the president has the authority to drop weapons. But you know, it was already spreading around the world. Press travels quickly. This is just Truman misspeaking, but it has gigantic implications. Now, so with this 
disastrous press conference, but also uh, the reissuements of uh, corrections of that statement. Uh, statements aren't really paid attention to as much as original statements made by the White House. So MacArthur has a press advantage in this situation and is seeing the end of his career as a military commander and is desperate to make changes. So he comes up with a plan to establish nuclear launches from bombers into Manchuria, create something that was referred to as a dirty belt, which was taking nuclear waste and establishing uh, drops of nuclear waste all across North Korea in order to basically poison the Chinese and North Korean forces who, on average, had about three days of food stockpiled with them and take more reinforcements of U.S. forces and Chinese nationalist forces who have been forced onto the island of Taiwan and engage in large-scale operations across this dirty belt like a massive Inshan landing with both airborne and uh, naval invasions to push back the Chinese and with Chinese nationalist forces gobble up all of the Korean Peninsula and maybe even parts of Manchuria to get uh, Chiang Kai-shek a foothold into China again, in which he could do what he pleases, but MacArthur didn't care really about that. He just cared about using their men to fix his situation and drive the Chinese completely out of Korea. There's a few issues with this plan. Uh, barring that it sounds insane, um, it is not strategically possible against most of the rules established to MacArthur at the start of this war, would poison water supplies. Uh, he wasn't going to get reinforcements, no matter how hard he tried. That's not happening. He wasn't going to get reinforcements. The troops he had is the troops he had. Also, dragging UN forces into the Chinese Civil War, which had just slightly wrapped up in 1949, it doesn't make sense at all. Why would you do that? <laughs> Um, so this is, uh, MacArthur's major plan, uh, that everyone who's in the know in the United States, uh, gets an update on. And this is finally, uh, the last straw for Truman. It is time for MacArthur to, uh, be fired. And MacArthur is removed, uh, with, you know, some ceremony, but as uh, the situation in Korea is a losing one at this current time in late 1950, MacArthur is unceremoniously you know, sacked. And uh, But his choice for replacement that everyone agreed on was Matthew B. Ridgway. Now, Matthew B. Ridgway was a longtime United States Army veteran overseeing the transfer of the 82nd Airborne from an infantry division to an airborne division participating in uh, major combat operations in World War II with the 82nd Airborne in Sicily, Italy, and D-Day, a veteran of the Battle of the Bulge, and all around a very seasoned military commander. And he is called up to take control of the situation in Asia. And that is where Douglas MacArthur's story ends and Matthew B. Ridgway's story in 1951 begins. With Matthew B. Ridgway assuming command, the Korean War took a different turn. With the drastic swings that happened early on in the war, from North Koreans storming down to American and UN forces swinging up to the Chinese swinging back down, 
it begins to stabilize around the 38th parallel and form into more of a stalemate as the Chinese have uh, two decently successful but not as successful as their first offensive offensives around the 38th parallel and the United States make a counteroffensive. really it's forming into more of a World War One-esque battle uh, all across the 38th parallel area with more rough terrain uh, as this area is extremely uh, hilly it forms into a bunch of defensive artillery duels that results in, you know, both Chinese and Americans being slaughtered over, frankly, pointless hilltops that just have numbers. But there is one success that really could have happened if Douglas MacArthur was in place, but also uh, Matthew B. Ridgway kind of gets credit for, is the stabilization and also the fact that a little less than half a million American troops find a way to stop a little less than three million Chinese uh, soldiers flying down the Korean Peninsula and form into a stalemate. Uh, and although the United States is forced into a, uh, a limited war in this situation, the Chinese are giving it all they have, and it might be one of the first instances in which we see one side putting in a complete total war and the other side only engaging in a limited war. But that's because nukes were off the table, uh, as covered earlier in this episode. While this stabilization is happening as we're in April of 1951, Ridgway takes command April 12th. The fighting is continuing. Everything we just described is happening all throughout 1951, but we're going to kind of shift gears and focus on the election of 1952, which is starting to heat up. Now, this is a Korean War podcast, and this is an American election, but it's an American election that is very important to the Korean War, because whoever wins is going to decide not only how the war is prosecuted, but also how the peace is pursued after the war. So the Democratic Party coming into the 1952 presidential election has been riding a wave of a myriad of successes ever since FDR became president in 1933. The Democratic Party has had virtually a solid grip in Congress, a grip on the presidency, and has been able to pass its policies and achieve its goals uninterrupted for over a decade. But when it came to the 1950 election, the Democrats lost control of Congress for the first time in forever. So in 1950, with... uh, What people thought would happen is Democrats would be in control virtually forever. FDR was extremely popular, but it's no longer FDR is not alive, and it is 1950. And the Democratic Senate majority went from 12 congressmen down to two, and the House majority went from 17 to 12. This is drastic. This is a disastrous moment, and it's possible now that the Republican Party can make a comeback and can do filibusters in Congress and stop Democratic policy from being passed. And the issue is, is after you know that happened, Truman is losing popularity drastically. Uh, he was going into the 1952 presidential election with a 66% disapproval rating after the firing of Douglas MacArthur. 
and uh, also the issues with the Korean War going on and dealing with other situational issues between uh, the new rising stars of the Republican Party, such as Richard Nixon and Joseph McCarthy, there's really there's nothing Truman can do. And Truman makes a very haphazard attempt to run again for the third term, as he was allowed to. He's the 22nd Amendment was just recently passed, but he was allowed to based on starting before that and really doesn't really make any effort to do that uh, with the president nominee being Aldi Stevenson and John Sparkman for vice president. That's who the Democrats had on their ticket. But there was an underlying political game going on ever since the end of World War II, and that was who's going to get Dwight D. Eisenhower. The Republicans had the draft Eisenhower movement. Effectively, they had letter writing, all that kind of stuff to convince him to run as a Republican, basically telling him, you're a shoo-in. You're, you're going to get the nomination if you just put your name in the hat and you're probably going to be president because Truman is historically unpopular for the time. His challengers for the nomination when he did decide to run were uh, Robert A. Taft, who was actually an early front runner before Eisenhower put his name in the bucket. He was a fairly popular senator from Ohio. He he basically got all the early shots in on Truman, you know, criticizing him over the war, criticizing him over foreign policy, all that kind of stuff. Basically laying laying the carpet out for whichever Republican would win the nomination. And now Harold Stassen of Minnesota, who was a former governor, and Earl Warren, who was a current governor of California, also put their names in the race, but Eisenhower just kind of ran away with it. He didn't necessarily even put that much effort in. In fact, he didn't even pick a vice president until the Republican convention because he had just kind of assumed that the Republicans were going to pick one for him. But he picked one, and that person was Richard Nixon, senator from California. Now, MacArthur got some votes for president, like delegates from the Republican convention, but he never really made an effort to run he never really tried. It, it was more of a protest vote against Truman than an actual concerted effort to get MacArthur to the presidency. So now you have Dwight D. Eisenhower, five-star general of the U.S. Army, president of Columbia University, supreme allied commander of Europe, military governor of the United States zone of occupied Germany. He's from Kansas. You know, he's a national hero. He oversaw the D-Day landings. He was probably the boss's boss's boss of millions of Americans who were drafted during World War II. He's a household name. People are doing a letter-writing campaign to get him to run for president. And he's running up against Aldi Stevenson, the governor of Illinois, in the general election. Now, we might be biased in our depiction of this election, but... Given the two names, who do you think is going to win? The guy who's incredibly well-known for his successful you know, victory in Europe and governorship over Germany and denazification efforts, or the guy who's the governor of a state? Now, it wasn't the largest runaway in presidential history, but uh, with Stevenson having a running mate who was uh, the governor of Alabama— he was pretty popular in the South, as was the Democratic Party at the time. This was during the shift of Democrats and Republicans kind of switching 
ideological identities that happened with FDR, but the base of Democrats being a major voting bloc in the South was still kind of in place. So Stevenson took a good chunk of the South, but didn't even win his home state of Illinois, in which he was governor of. Uh, Eisenhower would take the popular vote and 442 electoral votes out of 531. Remember, this is before Alaska and Hawaii are states. But with Stevenson only winning the Deep South uh, and Kentucky and West Virginia, it was frankly a shoo-in. And it looked like the I Like Ike campaign was going to be a massive success. And Dwight Diasnauer would assume the presidency in January of 1952. And as he assumed office, he had a lot on his plate. Not only was there dealings with NATO and Europe and, you know, the Cold War, but there's also the Korean War, which is that persistent little nagging problem in Asia. I mean, Truman got historical unpopularity from this war. It's not going particularly the way the Americans thought it would. And I guess Eisenhower's just hoping that he can be the one to deal with it. You know, he dealt with the Nazis. Maybe he can deal with the Korean issue. So the Korean Peninsula has been in a relative stalemate around the 38th parallel for over a year now. And both sides, both Chinese and North Korean and then UN forces, have realized that maybe this isn't the best situation. And there's discussions of a ceasefire. Now, this is big if you're Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party in China because the United States doesn't even recognize you. In the UN, they still recognize the Republic of China as the official Chinese government. And if you can get the American president, especially one as prestigious as the new president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, to sit down at a table with you, well, hell, they don't have to endorse you. You now have basically a endorsement of the existence of your government and you as a legitimate, you know, government of a country because, you know, the United States president is talking to you and they're talking to you as a party in a conflict. If you were an illegitimate government, why would they even talk to you? And that's a good move for Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party in China because you know, not now you get international legitimacy because you're talking to what is one of the two world's biggest superpowers at a negotiating table. But just because there are talks going on does not mean that the fighting has stopped. You see, UN forces, although Dean Acheson months earlier had mentioned that any peace talks would be around the 38th parallel as a, you know, demarcation line, they weren't actually on the 38th parallel at this point. See, they had pushed north of the 38th, some five miles in some places around Seoul, while they were still not quite to it in other places where, as according to Ridgeway, they were of tactical invalue. So there was plans, at least Ridgeway wanted, a 20-mile deep demilitarized zone around what he dubbed the Kansas Line, which was the military design for a holding pattern. Effectively, they that drawn a line on the map that was actually like realistic to the realities of what the terrain looked like, and that's what they had been holding the stalemate at. 
Ridgeway was pushing for the Kansas line to be the actual borders of Korea instead of the 38th parallel because the 38th parallel is just a marking on a globe. It, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a line. Whereas the Kansas line was the actual realities of the situation. It represented the actual holdings of UN forces in the area. And Ridgeway was thinking, well, this is ridiculous if we just give up all of these gains. In fact, he kind of got an idea from the Joint Chiefs of Staff to push even further past the Kansas line, some 10 miles, just to kind of reinforce this point. But this plan was uh, shelved when they decided it would have unacceptable casualties for very little strategic gain. Effectively, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the military were pressuring Ridgeway to be tough and keep the pressure on the Chinese just to show that they're not going to roll over. They wanted to get the best terms possible, even if ultimate, you know, complete victory was impossible. They weren't going to just roll over. But they also didn't want another MacArthur issue. They didn't want him overreaching beyond the actual limitations of the military at this point. It was kind of an intricate balance right now. They needed to keep up appearances of actually being fully committed to the war while also not being fully committed to the war. Now, but that's just the U.S. side of this negotiation system. The Chinese want to also gain the best negotiating advantage they can get, so Chinese forces did not stop in engaging in operations to take positions that the Americans were holding in order to gain ground and hold a hill or maybe an extra piece of a river or anything like that in order to secure better positions and chip away at what positions the Americans had uh, holding that could be used as a bargaining chip. So if you go ahead and you gobble up the American territory that they use as a bargaining chip, well, now the Americans are in a weaker position negotiating-wise. So what's going on now is a game of uh, political backroom politics between multiple countries in a road to getting peace talks while uh, the average soldier is dying over pieces of dirt that don't really matter that you can retake uh, at any point just to gain a slightly better thought of advantage in a negotiation table which isn't even established yet because they're still trying to pick a place to have the talks or establishing a proper venue or avenue to have these conversations about peace. And really, this all comes down to uh, a 10-mile stretch of Korea, uh, whether 10 miles north or south along this border that's been established. And, you know, millions have died in this, uh, you know, massive civil war. And there are thousands upon tens of thousands of men dying every single day in these engagements that really are completely pointless. And uh, the ridiculousness of this is, you know, staggering. And these uh, the leaders are honestly, I personally think this is maybe a failure of understanding uh, your own people because you're trading the lives of your own armies in exchange for your involvement in a civil war that's not even for your own country on both sides. China's not actually, uh, you know, Korea, part of Korea. Why are they involved in a Korean civil war? And why are Americans involved in a Korean civil war? And why are Chinese and American forces butchering each other by the thousands to negotiate the end of a Korean civil war? Now, Singman Reed during all of this, you remember our old friend from the past couple episodes? He was basically a non-factor in terms of American negotiation. 
I mean, we've been focusing so much on America and China and North Korea, mostly because the South Korean state effectively had very little actual control over its own future once again. The Americans were negotiating with supposedly the best interests of South Koreans in mind, but the South Koreans were barely even present. I mean, when President Eisenhower came to South Korea in November 29th of 1952, Sigmund Rhee had this whole week planned. It was going to give legitimacy to his presidency, you know. He's been president for a bit, and then he got into a gigantic war with the communist Chinese, the Americans, all these forces being involved. He's barely got time to establish himself. And finally, the president's coming for a week-long visit. You know, they're going to show off just how much the South Korea and Eisenhower only spends two hours with them. They basically just get completely blindsided by this and completely ignored. I mean, you go to the country of a warrior fighting and you don't even like give the president of that country the time of day. One would figure that Eisenhower would want to, you know, meet with three for maybe a majority of the time, discuss terms, you know, make sure their governments are collaborating. But I don't think the American government cared what the South Koreans thought at the time. They were just wanting to get out. That That's kind of a, a nutshell of how South Korea has been treated. As we kind of highlighted in the first episode, never been in control of their own future. They're in this gigantic war just to get their own peninsula back, and it just isn't going too well. And we've been focusing on the Americans a lot because they've been involved in a lot of the fighting and they have a lot of the heavy weapons. And even though the Korean people outnumbered the Americans, the Americans were kind of the ones with the initiative, you know, they they were the driving factor. But soon the war is going to be over and the Koreans are going to be back in the driver's seat. But finally, the two sides are coming to the negotiation table, leading to a prisoner exchange uh, in mid-1953, but also in mid-1953, when it came to the month of March 1953, Joseph Stalin's dead. So there is a big political infighting within the original Soviet Union to establish a new premier of the Soviet Union, and this gives an opportunity of UN forces to be able to get kind of one-upped on the Chinese and Korean forces in this negotiation. So the line where it would establish... So the line that would establish the end of the war in the ceasefire that is being negotiated on would basically be assumed to be wherever troops are right now, and there would be establishment of a demilitarized zone in which no one can cross and they would maintain that border for the time being until eventually a Korean peace would come along. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with Korea today, but there is still a DMZ, and there ain't no D in that MZ, because it's one of the most heavily militarized areas in the world. But with the negotiations going on, eventually an armistice will be signed on the 27th of July, 1953, and it is the end of the Korean War for the American side. With uh, Now it is passed on to the people of the Koreas as it's now split. And 
honestly, the legacy still lives on today because if you know anyone who has served the United States military, the chances that they have been to Korea or served in Korea is extremely high. And the chances that you uh, get an opportunity to go to the DMZ, you can see that this war has a legacy in which there is now a split across two countries that really they've developed separate accents where you can tell a difference between the way that a North Korean speaks and then the way the South Korean speaks. Or you can look at a map, a satellite map, and see light pollution. Or you can watch any videos, whether it contains Dennis Rodman or not, of life in North Korea or any you know modern media that's coming out, especially with the rise of South Korean media being as big as it is in the United States or in the Western world in general the life in South Korea and compare it to how life is in North Korea. But this split happened in July of 1953. And South, fun fact, South Korea never signed the Armistice Agreement due to Sigmund Rhee's refusal to sign it because he believed he failed as president of Korea. And this is where we see the Koreans and president of Korea, or South Korea at this time, uh, Sigmund Rhee, taking destiny into his own hands. A negotiation that was mainly led by Chinese and American forces is nothing to him because he's refusing to sign it. And finally, there is, although a not unified Korea, there is a part of Korea that is able to take its hands and take its own destiny back. And there's two Koreas to go on two separate paths of having their own destiny. And really, that is a good way to look at the Korean Peninsula now, is the two different ways Korea could have handled their own destiny. So we thank you for joining us for the Korean War series. Uh, it's been a long time, but we had fun. We hope you did, too. Um, join us next week for something else. Uh we don't know what it is yet, but it will not be a long-form series. We're going to do a couple more one-offs before our next long-form series, which we have an idea for, and we're going to start production of, but we're going to do a couple of uh, breather episodes before that. So yeah, once again, thank you for tuning in. Uh, you guys make this possible. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Clio History, or you can email us at our new email, uh, Cleo History Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, Cleo is spelled the same as our podcast. So if you find this podcast, you can find our email and our Twitter. Uh, we do post these on YouTube. Um, if you want to listen to an audio podcast on a visual platform for some reason, you can do that. Uh, but, anyways, it's been great. Uh, I've been RC. And I've been Matt. And thanks for listening. Bye bye.